And Lord, how great is the love that you have lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so, Lord, we've come to this place once more just to open your word and to hear from our Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us instruction and righteousness, direction from our Lord, that we would be found obedient to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings. Greetings, neighbors. Howdy. Andrew. How you doing, Jim? Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9 as we continue on in our series or an overview of the books of Acts, a church that acts like Acts. Again, there should be a Bible in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Is everybody good? Everybody's good. All right. Very good. A couple of things before we get going, just, uh, just a couple of comments that I think are necessary to be made just in some of the things that have been going. Somebody say, uh-oh. <laughs> Nobody's in trouble here. <laughs> um, the first one is, is Super Bowl. Um, enjoy it. If you're going to go to the Super Bowl, enjoy it. But be a witness. Use it for the Lord's glory. Um, a lot of us will be going to families and friends, unsaved uh, uh, might be part of that. And again, just use it for God's glory. I mean, nothing's wrong with this entertainment and sports and all that, as long as you keep it in the proper perspective. We are having service tonight, though. Um, my son will be out. He's in the book of Matthew. But um, I can save you a lot of time. Kansas City is going to win. Don't boo me. I could care less who wins, and I'll be here tonight. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I don't know. When we were at the other property, and I just joke when I say I don't have a clue who's going to win. I don't, again, don't really care that much. Um, I, I, a couple years in a row, I said, hey, so-and-so is going to win, so come to church tonight, and so-and-so won. And then the next year, I said, so-and-so is going to win. Come to church tonight, and so-and-so won again. And then the next year, somebody called me like the week before and said, Pastor Mike, who are you picking to win the Super Bowl this week? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really care. <laughs> anyway, just as long as we keep these things in proper perspective, it's all good. Uh, second one's a little bit more serious, the Kobe question. And I've heard a lot of uh, comments on this and the Internet, you know, just everywhere. Um, you know, why is he so important, just a basketball player? Well, unfortunately, we make uh, mountains out of our celebrities, and our celebrity salvation is so important to us. You know, is he really saved? Is he in heaven right now? And we take little bits and pieces and build whole theologies on it. Is Kobe in heaven right now? I don't know. I don't know the man. Never met him. Never met him. Appreciated his talent and appreciated as a Laker fan and, and all of that. But as far as him being right with God, I don't know. Um, it's been uh, reported that he went to the Catholic Church and celebrated communion that morning, but hell is going to be populated with people who go to church and celebrate communion. It's all about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's a YouTube video of him talking about taking up his cross and, and, and whatnot, and I'm just not going to really get into that a whole lot, but hell is going to be populated with people who are able to quote scripture. The devil knows more scripture than we will ever know. So am I saying that Kobe was condemned? No, I'm saying that I don't know. Well, then why are you bringing it up? Because there is a consideration here, and the consideration is for your own soul. Because Jesus addressed the same situation, not Kobe's situation, but, but he addressed death. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifice. Apparently Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had murdered some of the priests, some, I'm sorry, some of the Galileans. And it says, and Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, 
are those 18 on whom the Tyre Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so the thing I can tell you about Kobe Bryant is, and, and the rest of the people, I don't know, know them, but the rest of the people as well, they were going about their day. They, they went about their day. They had all of their plans. And Kobe got in a, a helicopter, as was his habit, my understanding, and, and was flying just like he has done so many times before. But on that particular day, his life was required of him. And we never know when that day is going to happen. And so my question to you is, are you prepared for that day? Because what Jesus said here, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what Jesus' point is, you're here today. The God of all grace and mercy stands before you just as he does here today through his word. And he's saying, unless you repent of your sins, unless you come to a saving knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is, you're going to perish as well. And so it, the, the question is, where is Kobe Bryant? The question is, where are you? And so I just offer that to you. That, that's my thoughts on what had happened. I pray that Kobe Bryant did have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and is in the presence of, of Jesus Christ in glory right now. Um, but... I don't know, but I do know where I'm at, and I pray that you do know where you're at as well. Jesus said, you must be born again. So, now, in Acts, the book of Acts, we've been looking at this series to understand if our church, the church, if us as individuals, are we truly a church that acts like Acts, that we conduct ourselves according to the pattern that is set before us by the book of Acts. Now, this is our fourth study in this particular series. Previously, we have seen that a church that acts like Acts is first evangelical. Secondly, they wait upon the Lord. Thirdly, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, they are moving and ministering. They are encouraging to the discouraged. They hate hypocrisy, and they're witnessing as the world harasses. And now we come to number nine. A church that acts like Acts is just like you. It's just like you. Just, just the same as they were back then. So are you. It's, it's filled with people who were sinners. It's filled with people who, who, who were lost and were in a terrible situation, but Christ entered in and changed all of that. And, and so we've got a, 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 a building, whatever it is, wherever it is that they, they met back then, but filled with people who have been redeemed and who have been set free. And, and, and again, just as they were back then, we are today, and we need to see that. Matter of fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning, you'll see how diverse they, they were. It says in, in, in verse 8, And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontius in Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, adjoining Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And so this was a very diverse church. The church should be, as I mentioned before, it should be very diverse. There should be different nationalities because ultimately, what did we just sing? We're all part of the same family. We're all children of the living God. And so a church that acts like Acts is just like us. You cut this church in half, a cross-section of this church, it should mimic the same cross-section of the church that was meeting way back when. And so, church said Acts like Acts. Well, Paul was meeting Christ on the Damascus Road as he was going to persecute the church. And it's very similar to how Christ met you, how Christ met myself. We were on the road going to wherever it was we were going, wherever it was we were going. And then, just when it least expected it, Christ entered into our life and altered our life. So, Jew or Gentile, we were all apart from Christ. We were all met by Christ and those who are born again have all come to Christ. Paul's great testimony is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although, and that's a huge word, and that word should stand out to you, 
because Paul was not put into ministry because of ability, because of perfection. He says, although, and you should be able to relate to this, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Now, when he says I'm chief, he's not saying I'm the best one. He's saying I am the worst of them all. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. It was an example to you and me that we would understand, yeah, I've done some bad things before. I was a sinner. I was in constant rebellion to God. But I can look at Paul and think, but I never killed anybody because of their faith. At least we hope there's nobody in here who did that, although you never know. But Paul would imprison people, and some people died because of that, because of Paul's persecution of the church. And I, I really realize that that's how Paul would understand the magnitude of the grace of God because of the magnitude of the sinner that he used to be. And so he would sing out the praises of the Lord because Jesus Christ changed him. Jesus Christ altered his life. And so we were all on our road to Damascus, and we were just as Paul was. And so look at this six-part process that we have here in chapter 9. And again, we're doing an overview on the book of Acts, so we're not digging in any one particular place, but we're going through pretty rapidly. But what we see in this process of the Lord meeting us, first of all, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, you see the previous person. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that would be Christianity, that's how it was referred to. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Any of the way, whether men or women, might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so you were probably pretty much the same. You didn't find anybody or so you probably didn't have anybody arrested or whatever but you still persecuted the church yeah do you have to come up with that jesus stuff all the time i'm tired of hearing that bible you're constantly thumping on that bible are you going to church again it's super bowl sunday and you're going to church tonight yeah, because Pastor Mike said, he said Kansas City is going to win anyway, so why, why bother? No, but the previous person that you were, and you were contrary to the Lord. Matter of fact, the Bible tells me that you were enmity with God, and so we can relate to the, the, the previous person. But then, verse 3, a revelation. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. We know that's the glory of God. In past studies, we've seen what the glory of God denotes. It denotes the presence of God. And so there was the presence of Jesus Christ. And at some point through the Holy Spirit and somebody preaching the word to you, there was the glory of God. Probably wasn't a bright light, but there was the undeniable presence of Jesus Christ in whom you submitted yourself to. And then there was a degradation in verse 4. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A a degradation, what I mean is humiliation. He humbled himself. He humbled himself before Jesus Christ. Because even though Jesus may appear to you, you can still stand pridefully before him, and that is to refuse him. But what Paul did was he submitted himself, he humbled himself before Jesus Christ. Then there's a renovation in verse 5, and he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads renovation there's the desire for him to change to no longer kick against kick against the goats to kick against that which is spurring him in a particular direction and so this tells me that paul paul had previous conviction he understood the word the old testament and he probably knew it just as well as anybody else ever had And the Old Testament always leads us to Messiah, to Jesus Christ, till you have to come to the point, if you knew the Old Testament, come to the point that you have to willfully deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this tells me that the Apostle Paul, he knew better, and that's probably why he was so angry, is because he was so convicted. 
And so there was this renovation process that was necessary in his life. And then we see a dedication in verses 6 through 8. So he trembling, Paul, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. Dedication, dedication to doing the will of God, and it started immediately. It's what Jesus Christ told him to do, and he did it. And you could say, well, he didn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. He was blind. You always have a choice in the matter because it's a matter of the heart. And so Paul, Paul followed through, at least right at the beginning and on as we see his life and what God had called him to do. Verse 9, and really through to the end of the chapter, speaks of an association. And, here, and he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. And the idea is he's becoming associated with God and the ways of the Lord and the gospel and the fulfillment of the gospel from the Old Testament. Paul, Paul started out a little bit further ahead than most of us do because, again, he had the background of the Word of God. My past religious belief before I was born again was good pre-Christianity. My Catholicism was good pre-Christianity, but there was not enough there to get me into heaven because there was no belief. It's when I heard the word of God preached and understood the gospel, it's then that I came into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I really believe I was able to hit the road running because of that past religious training, but it came to fruition on the day that I was born again. Moving over to chapter 10, we see how the Apostle Peter was given a lesson in God's perspective of all people. Chapter 10, we're going to be looking first at verse 34. Peter comes to the realization, all mankind were all the same sinners in the sight of God. Verse 34, and Peter, let me get to chapter 10. And then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. The day that I was saved, God didn't say, good, we got Mike on our side finally. I mean, there was rejoicing in heaven because a sinner got saved. But as far as who we are and our abilities and what we have to offer, we're just unworthy beggars. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. All that we are is because of God. Matter of fact, that's what we saw at the first part in the book of Acts. What did Jesus tell him to do? Go, go and wait. That means go and don't do anything. We saw their weight was an active weight and that they were praying, fellowshipping, and that they were in the Word of God. But first, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the only good thing that dwells inside of us is the Holy Spirit that enables us in this great work of ministry. So God looks at all of mankind and does not look at the outside, but God examines the heart. He examines the heart because outside, we can so easily build facades. We can so easily come to church and act like one manner and go home and act like hell. And, and, and again, it's one of the worst things that we can do to our families. It's one of the worst things that we can do for our witness for the Lord. And so it matters not to God if you're Jew or Gentile. God could care less about your religious affiliation. It matters not to him if you are slave or free. He doesn't care about your social situation. It matters not to him if you are a male or female. Gender association means absolutely nothing to God. It's where is your heart before the Lord and are you truly born again? Have you repented of your sins and do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ based upon who he is? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And so the question will always be, are you in Christ? And is Christ in you? That's always the question that needs to be asked. It doesn't matter where you go to church. It doesn't matter where you fellowship. Let me preface that by saying, as long as it's a church that teaches the word of God, what matters is where are you at with the Lord? John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood, it's not a birthright. 
not of the will of flesh, it's not based upon works of righteousness which we have done, nor of the will of man, nobody else is able to get you in, but those who were born of God. And here's the instructions in how to be born of God. It's based upon the word of God. The next thing we see here is, is that all men are the same sinners, but also have the same creator. Verses 35 through 37. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And so as God will deal with all of mankind, all of mankind needs to deal with God. And what I mean by deal with God, seek God out and God's plan for salvation. And so what all of this is talking about is, is again, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The personal relationships that I have are with me at all times personal relationship that I have with my wife. It fulfills the majority of my life. My kids, my grandkids, it's all about the personal relationship, and that speaks volumes. Last night, we were invited to the ballet. I went to the ballet last night. Why would I subject myself to that? (laughs) Because my granddaughter was there, and she, uh, this ballet lasted for three hours. (laughs) See, as I said, you never know when the day of your death was approaching. Well, last night I almost died in boredom. Um, and so I sat there and watched these people, you know, these little kids that kind of fell over on themselves and these bigger ones that could dance pretty good, but, you know, it's just, it's ballet. But then my grandchild came out, and she, you know, for three hours, she had about a two-minute thing, but it was the best two minutes of the whole program because there's that personal relationship that I I had with her and throughout this life personal relationships they surround us and they encompass us and they fulfill us and so that personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ it should fulfill the totality of our lives the totality of who we are and so same creator next thing we see here is we have the same savior because there's only one verse 38 how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Showed him openly as not only Lord, but Lord and Savior a point Peter made earlier in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other names, for there is no other name under heaven by which mankind must be saved. The next thing that we see after that progression is, is a willing witness, verses 40 through 43, how God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And so how has God chosen to spread this message? Through the witness. Let's look at the witness for a minute. Witness? Well, if you look at a court of law, I sat on a jury once before, and they never asked the witness, well, what do you think? They never asked the witness, what's your opinion? The only thing they asked the witness is, what did you see? What do you know? You know, remember Joe Friday? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's that's all they they wanted. Nobody cares about you. You should not care about my opinion for, for the most part. It's what are the facts here? That's why we keep a Bible open before us, and that's why I encourage you to to do so as well. If I present an opinion, which obviously I'll do from time to time, you can make sure that the things I say line up with the Word of God. And so what the Apostle John did in John chapter 1, he made a truth statement concerning Jesus Christ based upon his motivation for writing the Gospel of John. 
And what was the motivation for writing the Gospel of John? Well, he presents his thesis in the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word. And we're not going to go through all this, but the Word is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he's showing us that Jesus Christ came from God, was with God, and is in fact God himself. That's why John wrote the Gospel of John, his Gospel, to prove that Jesus Christ is God. And so what does John do right out of the bat? Well, he uses six of them, but he offers John the Baptist as his first, calls his first witness, and his first witness is John the Baptist. He also would use the witness of the Father, John 8, 18, I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus himself, John 8, 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. He speaks of the witness of the Holy Spirit, John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And I'm not going to read all the rest of the scriptures, but there's the works of Jesus Christ. There's the scriptures. There's the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle John, he presents his thesis, then he proceeds to back it up, and he backs it up with the testimony of the witness. And so you can come to me and you can deny Jesus Christ for who he is. You can deny him that he's ever existed. You can deny that he died upon the cross. You can deny that he's God. You can deny that he's Lord and Savior and all of this stuff. But the one thing I know is I once was blind and now I see. And the great turning point was my coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I can give witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ. I can look back at my life and see who I used to be. And, and I can see at that point of my salvation the change that God has worked. And now I can see this changed life of this born-again believer. And being pastor has nothing to do about it. It's all about being born again. And, and the truth of the gospel should ring forth in your life as you look at who you used to be. You should be able to give witness of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And the good thing about it is, they can, say, they can call you a liar and everything else, but they can't really speak against it other than that. Because how can you tell me that my life wasn't changed? How can you tell me what I believe and what has been revealed to me? That's the good thing about a witness. If a witness is, is genuine, he'll be able to withstand questions from both sides of the story. Why? Because he knows the truth of what he has seen. Do you know the truth of what you have experienced? Do you know the reality of what Christ has done and the magnitude of what Christ has done? It's these things, and you know, that, that's your testimony. It's these things that we're able to speak of and give witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sole purpose of a witness is to establish what the truth is. I can go home and tell you whatever, but my true witness is going to be the life that I live. It'll be a witness to my spouse. It'll be a witness to my children. It's a witness to my grandchildren. It'll be a witness to those people who are around me. That's going to speak volumes of a relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. And so here, John gives us three main qualifications of a witness concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. First is in John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. A witness for the Lord Jesus Christ is sent from God. And so consider that. The person who shared the gospel with you, you didn't just run into them. They were sent by God for that specific purpose. God looked down upon you, desired to save you, and sent that person into your life to preach his truth into your life that you might be saved. And so what you also might need to consider here, you do need to consider here, where is he sending me? Who is it that he's sending me into their lives that they might be saved? If God will once again send somebody to you, then he will send you into somebody else's life. 
And then John chapter 1, verse 7, second qualification of a witness. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. His witness is of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's not about having a fruitful, victorious life. It's about coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God does not guarantee you a victorious he do have a victorious Christian life because you have victory over sin, but it's not going to be easy. Matter of fact, Christianity, it's going to be one of the hardest things that you ever do because you're going to have to die to your flesh and you're going to have to die to your flesh daily. But as you put forth the effort, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my, my burden is light. Because, well, what do we have to compare that with? Well, you can go back to living a life of sin and that was a yoke that nobody could bear because eventually that's going to crush you. And so... Our witness are witnesses of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And then the last part of verse 7, that all through him might believe. A witness, witness speaks of the grace of God. The grace of God, this great love with which God has for us, yet that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's the unmerited favor of God. Remember mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy keeps us out of hell. But grace Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is what gets us into heaven. And so these things, if you're a true witness, you're sent by God, you witness the Lord Jesus Christ, and you preach salvation by grace or the gospel message. John was prophesied, his coming was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the idea here is in the midst of all of the human philosophies and the good ideas of man that are out there here's that which is going to cut that straight path through every obstacle that has ever existed john 134 and i have seen and testified this is john the baptist speaking and i have seen and testified that this is the son of god if you witness if you have a heart to tell people about jesus christ god will bring people into your life who need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was D.L. Moody who said, if you, will be on the, if you will be on fire for the Lord, people will come to watch you burn. But if you say, well, I've never had anybody that I'm able to tell, you know, tell Jesus to, that's probably because you never tell Jesus to anybody. But I guarantee you, if you speak the word, God will bring people. Church that acts like acts, just like you, just like us. Number 10, a church that acts like Acts has a call just like Paul. Turn to Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> Any time that I've ever had the opportunity to teach on how we identify a call from God, this is the section of Scripture that I've taught from. Some of you have heard this probably even more than a few occasions, but apparently you need to hear it again because you're here today, and that's what I'm going to be speaking from today. But in Acts chapter 13, we have this call, just like the Apostle Paul, the things that were going on in the Apostle Paul's life. You know what God's desire for you is? Do you know what God's call for you is in your life? I mean, you're already born again, but what is God calling you to do? And if the answer is, well, I'm not sure, I don't know, you get some of the clues right here, at least how to position yourself, and maybe that's the key here, how to position yourself to hear what God has for you. And so we're going to look at a couple of points in this particular chapter so that we would be able to understand that we would be able to know. Now, myself, I became born again, and I remember God telling me, he didn't say, Mike, one day you're going to be pastor. He says, Mike, one day you're going to get some kind of a call. Are you going to be ready? And so the thing that I knew was to be constantly prepared for the call that God had upon me for when he brought it to me, I would be ready to go. And so throughout the whole procedure and everything that God was doing, I ended up as a staff minister at a church. I was the children's minister. And then the pastor made the determination, Pastor David at Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, that he was going to start a class for guys who felt called to be pastors. And I had business 
failing and God took away my electrical business in order to bring me into the ministry and I didn't really have any desire whatsoever to be the lead person or whatever it might have been. So I didn't really have a desire for that. But all the other staff guys were going to the class just because the support pastor, I figured, well, I better go as well. And so I did, and all the other staff guys eventually faded off, and I was the only one there as far as to facilitate the class. And so um, there I was, but it was in the midst of that, as I was doing all these things, as active in the work of ministry, that I heard the call of God upon my life. And so the very first thing what we see here is, and you need to consider this, if you desire to know what God is calling you to and where God is calling you, use this as a checklist. Verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, and so this was a church, this was a church that came to be the jumping off point for the ministries that would spread throughout all of modern day Europe. It was in northern Israel, even into Syria. It was on that corner of the Mediterranean just before you would go up into modern-day Turkey. And so this was really a church that had a connection with the mother church in Jerusalem and, again, was the sending off point. Some would go to Asia. Paul thought he was going to go to Asia, but others went into Europe and throughout all of that area. And so, again, here we have the starting point. The starting point for anybody that wants to know the call of God in their life, they were involved in the local church. If you're not involved in your local church, if you're not attending your local church, then you're never going to hear the call of God because we have been commanded. Now, this is a New Testament command. Do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. And it just blows my mind, some of the people that I have heard. I had one guy say, I was talking to him after church, so how'd you know about it? So I saw you on the internet, but I just moved down here. Where are you from? I'm from Oregon. Oh, you're from Oregon. What made you come down here? Well, I got arrested, and I don't remember what he got arrested for. And so I figured I'd come down here, and I think I want to be a pastor. <laughs> yeah, we're all a bunch of crooks, so that kind of goes to follow. Um, but I'm just this guy didn't have a clue. He was looking for just a, a job. He was looking for an occupation. And if you look at, if you read biographies, that was kind of even a common thing in the early times in our nation, people just looking for occupations. Well, you have to be involved in a local church, and you'll see why, because there's other necessities, but it all starts there. Secondly, confirmation comes from godly men. Well, godly fellowship, I guess I should say, because God calls women uh, to what he has for them as well, and this you shouldn't be in a group of godly men. If you're a woman, you should be in a group of godly women. But it says, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Paul. And so these were a group of godly guys. And they were, how do you know that they were so godly? Well, we don't, but since they made the Bible, I, I think that that uh, it, it pretty much tells us that they were, but we do see that these are people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Where do you see that? It says they were certain prophets and teachers. That's their spiritual gifting. So we had these group of men who were filled with the Spirit, and they were fellowshipping together, doing the work of ministry together. That was essential in my growth. I got involved in a men's small group right out of the bat. And even secondly, around that same time, I joined the church basketball team. And you might have think, well, what's the big deal about that? But these were godly men that I didn't think, hey, I need to surround myself with godly men. I thought, hey, it'd be fun to play basketball. And then you're kind of supposed to sign up for a small group. So I didn't really understand what I was doing, but I did do those things, and they had a profound effect in my spiritual life. And so this is the godly fellowship of people who will pray for you, people who will encourage you according to the word of God, people who will send you in the right direction, keeping your priorities in proper perspective. And so there has to be that, that ministry of people together. Verse 2, they didn't just attend the church and hang out with people. It says, and they ministered to the Lord. They served in that local church. The service within the body of Christ is a complete different dynamic than anywhere else. 
You're never going to find and understand what true service to the Lord means until you serve in the body of Christ. You may get fed up with your job. You may get sick and tired of your boss. You may get sick and tired of the people you work for. And if you're service-orientated, you may get sick and tired of the people, but it helps to satisfy you or whatever when you get that paycheck. You get the paycheck and, okay, well, I can eat and live for another week, and so I'll go and do it again. But the people that are over there watching your kids right now, they're not just watching them, they're ministering to them. They don't get paid. The people that vacuum in here and, and clean up, they don't pay. They're serving Jesus Christ through that way so that people would be able to come in here and be able to receive the Word of God. And so you're never going to understand this dynamic completely unless you're a servant. Jesus gave the illustration, we don't have time to go there, but in John chapter 13, what did he do? He humbled himself. He, he dressed himself as a servant, got down on his knees and washed their feet. And he also washed Judas's feet as well. And he says that he has done that as an example of what they will need to do. And so if you're truly going to be a servant of God, you need to learn certain things you need to learn and the number one thing you need to learn is to humble yourself and that your wishes and your desires would be brought subservient to the wishes and desires of God through those people and people they're a pain in the neck not you guys it's all those other church people that are out there but sometimes you can think Lord if you could just get rid of all the people ministry would be so much easier well ministry would be non-existent and so you notice like when we decide to, you know, we're, we're, if we end up staying here, we're probably going to get new carpet and probably going to get new chairs and probably going to paint and just give the place an up, uh, a, a facelift. What we're not going to do is ask everybody's opinion because that's where wars start in the middle of the church. What color do you think? Well, I want black. Well, I want purple. Well, I want green. If it's not green, I'm out of here because the purple people, they always get their wish and, and you can just go crazy and all of that stuff. And so just to humble ourselves, learn the work of ministry. You want to know the call of the Lord? Minister in the local church. Surround yourself with godly people and serve in that church. And then fourthly, have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so there's the call. The Spirit then speaks as they're in the midst of doing all of that. And so here we have God, the Holy Spirit, is now giving them direction. Paul was doing this for 16 years or so, give or take. So for quite a while, didn't just show up one day, didn't hear anything and go home. And so this is a process. It's not that you so much go through step one, two, and three, but you need to see the mindset here. And it's then that God spoke to him. And then fifthly, this calling will need to be bathed in prayer and fasting. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. doesn't say prayer here, but fasting is always connected with prayer. You need to be a person who prays and fasts at the beginning because you're going to need to be a person that prays and fasts every single day throughout the calling that God has given you. Sixthly, at some point, Look at verse 4. Verse 4, they're all important, but verse 4 is one of the, the, most thing, the most important. Well, look at verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And verse 4 is the important part. And being sent out by the Holy Spirit, what does it say? They went. They went. They, they, they signed up for ministry. I can't tell you how many people have taken so much of my time saying, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I feel called to do. Praise God, do it. I'll help you do it. I'll do what is ever necessary to see God's will uh, come to pass in your life. And then they never do it. They never do a thing. And, and it's very unfortunate because if God's calling them, God wants to use them. And I often wonder how much they have truly missed out. There's so many people who will go through the first five steps here and never take that final step and go. Why? Why is that step not taken so often? Because it's one of the hardest, because that's a step of faith. You're stepping out into faith. You're stepping out into the unknown. That's what Paul was doing as he was going to go up through modern Europe. He was going to step, there, there was just no guarantees. 
I remember thinking about this when I was on staff at that other church. I had a nice office. I had one of the biggest offices there. I kind of finagled that, but nonetheless, won't go there. Every other week, we got paid every other week, I'd go and my paycheck would be there. And pastor always says, if you ever come to me and tell me that you want to start a work, I'll do everything that I can do to help you do that. And one of the things that I'm going to do to help you do that is to relieve you of your duties here. <laughs> you're, not that you're going to be fired, but you're going to be let go because you need to go and do what God has called you to do. And that's what we did. We left. And I went back and doing electrical work. And 20-some years now, I didn't know that there was going to be a room full of people still attending here. Just one person, because she has to be here. But other than that, you just don't know. And so you, you take a step of faith, because if you want to see the glory of God in your life, you'll never know unless you take that first step. First step's always the hardest step to take. Number seven, when doing something for God, you're doing something against the enemy, and so there's going to be spiritual attack. So the very first thing that Paul encounters is the devil, is the spiritual attack. It says in verse 6, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they came to a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. More than likely, he's presenting himself as being the son of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. But he's a false prophet. Verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And so this man is a false prophet, and he's making, um, he, he's making friendships with the people who seem so important, who are able to, if you will, validate what they're doing. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated. Now here you have the opposition that comes. This is a definition here of spiritual attack. And the first thing is they withstood them. They're going to come up against you. If you're doing what God has called you to do, there's going to be opposition. I've heard so many people say, yeah, I'm going to do this. They even took the step of faith, but then they came back and said, it got hard. It must not have been of the Lord. No, when it gets hard, that means it is of the Lord because you're being opposed by the enemy. A friend of mine who was a missionary once told me something that was very wise. He said the faith was never in the going. The faith is in the staying and continuing on. And so to continue to push forward, Paul says the one thing that I do is to put the past in the past and continue to move forward. So first of all, we see this opposition, it withstands them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, again, we see the Holy, Holy Spirit that called them is the Holy Spirit that will continue to enable them, especially it's then that you're going to see how weak you are, but how strong God who dwells inside of you is. Looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all opposition is going to be deceitful because that's what Satan has been at the beginning. All fraud, he's going to be fraudulent because that's how Satan's been from the beginning. You son of the devil, well, they're not of God, so they're going to be of somebody, and they're of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, of everything that God wants to do, he's opposing that. Will you cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? It's what the enemy does. And so there's going to be that opposition. That opposition is going to be a reality. But what we strive for, eighthly, there will be fruit from your ministry. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished by the teaching of the Lord. Then in verse 13, it's going to get hard again. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Patmos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, this is John Mark, the one who would eventually write the Gospel of Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That's probably one of the hardest things that has gone on in ministry, the people who have departed. Some people depart in good ways. They, they move for whatever reason. God moves them on. They're called to a different place, a different ministry, or whatever. That, that's all good, and that's all fine. Then there's some people that depart and say some pretty ugly things, say some pretty insulting things, not just about me, but about you as well. Oh, yeah, who said that? No, I'm not getting into that. But um, that's the hardest part of ministry because you pour your heart out into people, people that you've helped, pe people that you, you, you've paid their bills sometimes, or people that you've given food to even. 
people that you've poured your heart and soul into and just do some cruel things. Or, and you know what one of the cruelest thing is? Is just to leave. Just to leave and to be gone and never say anything. Whatever happened to so-and-so? I don't know. They used to serve and used to be here and then all of a sudden they, they just left. And those things, those things are, are hard things. And John Mark, he did depart, but he would eventually be restored back to ministry. Tenthly, your main purpose in the midst of all of this, and we're not going to read it because of time, but in verses 14 through 16 and then 42, really from verse 14 all the way through to the end of the chapter, preach the gospel. You have to be gospel-centered because you have nothing else to give anybody else whatsoever than the word of God. And then lastly, the, rejo- the, the result, verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of just simply doing the will of your Father. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so if you sense a call from God, are you following through in those things? That's the biblical example because a church that acts like acts is doing these things in order to understand God's desire and then moving forward in the will of God. So a church that acts like acts, it's evangelical, it waits on the Lord, is filled with the Holy Spirit, is moving and ministering, is encouraging to the discouraged, hates hypocrisy, multiplies ministry, witnesses as the world harasses, is just like you in a church that acts like Acts, has a call just like the Apostle Paul. And then just this last verse, I'll close with this, what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come that judgment to begin, for judgment to begin at the house of God. Not judgment, condemnation, but evaluation, that we would evaluate ourselves and know Am I a person that acts like acts? Are we a church that acts like acts? Father, I just pray that you would reveal the truth of that to us, that, God, we would honestly open ourselves before you and truly know, God, that we're doing what you have called us to do. And, Father, a church that is doing these things, is firing on all cylinders, is moving in a good direction, is fulfilling your will and your desires, and it's that church that you bless. Father, I pray that you would bless our church, but I pray that we would also realize the responsibility of what we need to do to be receptive of those blessings. And so, Father, I lift up those who have come out today. I pray that you would watch over them and keep them. I pray, Father, that they would have a heart for your will and your ways, and you would use them in glorious ways beyond their ability. I do pray for this afternoon as we go into unsaved homes of family and friends that you would enable us, Father, to be the witnesses that you have called us to be, that, God, you would just continue to do a good thing through Calvary Chapel, Ontario, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?